David Hume, the towering figure of the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment, is, without doubt, the greatest philosopher to have written in English. He's my favourite philosopher, and the favourite of many other professional philosophers too. Renowned in his day as a historian and essayist, as well as a philosopher, his work has made a profound impact on how subsequent thinkers have addressed questions about the mind, morality, evidence for our beliefs and religion. Here's the philosopher A.C. Grayling. Well, firstly, he's a very clear thinker. He's an analytical thinker, which fits in very well with our more recent tradition in philosophy. And he's a very original thinker. If you think about what he had to say, it's startlingly new. That's why in his own day he wasn't uh, much recognised for a while anyway. But he's become a major figure in our tradition. We can't do without him. If we really want to get to grips with any thinker of the past, we need to have a sense of the context in which they were writing. Simon Blackburn is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Hume was born in the Scottish borders, uh, south of Edinburgh, in 1711, and he died in 1776, so he's a sort of mid-18th century character. He lived his life, more or less, in Scotland. Hume's Edinburgh was a magnet for many important thinkers, and the effects of their discussions and writing were far-reaching. By the time of Hume... uh, say, in the 1730s, 40s and 50s, the influence of the churches uh, were less repressive and there was a good deal of uh, liberal discussion, even among the clergy. This is Professor Peter Jones, formerly of Edinburgh University. Nevertheless, it was pretty difficult to ask certain ranges of questions. And one of the reasons why David Hume was branded a sceptic by absolutely everybody... Uh, was that in the questions that Hume asked and in the answers that he gave to them, there was no reference to God. Hume was a sceptic and probably an atheist for most of his life, and so he had to disguise his views to avoid persecution. Here's Peter Millikan of Oxford University. Prior to Hume, people thought of the world as designed by a divine intelligence and saw our intelligence, our minds, as given by God so as to enable us to understand the intricacy of his creation. What Hume does, he takes out the divine creator, says, no, actually, we've got no reason to suppose that the world was created by a perfect being. And he also, perhaps inevitably, displaces us so that we are no longer to think of our reason as being some faint copy of a divine faculty and instead to see it as an augmented and very powerful of an animal faculty. He doesn't think that there's a God-given faculty called reason which processes experience into thoughts. He thinks it just happens naturally. For example, um, if a baby puts its hand near the fire, it'll pretty rapidly learn not to, and it would be afraid of doing the same thing again. But so would an animal. Uh, Animals learn from experience. Babies learn from experience. It's the same kind of mechanism. And Hume was the first to stress that identity or similarity. So I think he is the first naturalist in philosophy. The way you've described Hume, it's actually quite a radical approach to question some of the received views that were dominant in his society. Did, did that get him into hot water ever? Oh, it did indeed, yes. Um, his anti-theological or anti-religious views um, got him into quite a lot of trouble. He failed to get the chair in Edinburgh because of that. 
he met opposition. He was very nearly um, impeached by the uh, the Synod of the Church of Scotland, uh, but his friends sprang to his defence, and he, and that was averted. He was very humorous about that. He said they um, they think of giving me over to the devil, which they believe they have the power to do. Uh, he was completely sceptical and and uh, the great infidel. He was called sometimes. Hume was called the great infidel because, in an age of believers, he questioned the reasons people gave for their certainty that God existed. Was he, though, deeply sceptical about everything? Here's Peter Millikan. Many people think of Hume as an irrationalist, because, as we've seen, he is sceptical about the pretensions of reason. But, in fact, Hume is very pro-science, anti-superstition, and it's quite a delicate balance. We've seen that he reduces, as it were, scientific reasoning to an animal instinct, the instinct for expecting the future to resemble the past. But then he wants to advocate that and say that's how we ought to reason about the world because actually that's the only basis that we have for learning anything about the world. He's not necessarily sceptical about, for for example, whether the sun will rise tomorrow. Uh, And I think it's a mistake to see him as uh, sort of agonising about that kind of proposition. Um, What he's sceptical about is the power of reason to tell you that the sun will rise tomorrow. He thinks your confidence in the uniformity of nature is one of those animal propensities. And it might let you down. You can't argue that it won't. Um, But you can go on living your life as if it won't. And that's what we are, in fact, bound to do. With him, modern philosophy took wings. He was a model of clarity and integrity, both as a writer and thinker. Simon Blackburn sums up his importance beautifully. The reason why people love him, I think, is his writings do breathe a great benign kind of humanity. He has a kindly aspect to him, unlike, say, Kant, who always seems rather prickly and sharp-edged. Hume is rounded. He was literally round by the time of his death, anyhow. And that somehow comes across. I think one of the phrases he uses is the calm sunshine of the mind. And I've always thought that applied to Hume entirely. The calm sunshine of his mind breathes out in a lot of his works. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.